0: So there are two things that happen when we come to church to gather. Church, as Craig reminded us so well, uh, Craig Yarborough reminded us so well yesterday in, uh, at the men's retreat that we had here at the church. Uh, among the church, as Craig reminded us, that when we gather as God's people, that is the church. It's the assembly of God's people, that this is the church building, we call it, but that we gather as God's people, as the church. And two things always happen when we gather that uh, are most significant. One, our faith is grown. The church is a faith factory, if you will. It is where faith is produced and grown and fostered. And the church is also a place where God is glorified. And in fact, God is glorified insofar as our faith is grown. And so we come to the Lord this morning through teaching at this portion of the service, asking that God would use this period of the service and everything that follows to do those two things, to build faith in us and to bring glory to his name. And so with that, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26, which we have here on the poster uh, to my right, as I'm up here on the stage to my right, we have this passage on the poster. We have two passages, uh, one from the end of Romans 8 and then one from Romans 3. And it's always difficult. We've always put up two passages when we, do, when we start a new series. And for a book like Romans, that is incredibly difficult because you really want to put the whole book on the wall, the whole book. But these are two passages that stand out the most in this book of Romans. Mar- Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle And then he went so far as to say this, and of the whole Bible, the chief point of all of Scripture, right here in front of our eyes. And in more recent years, the fairly well known commentator, he's commented on a number of biblical books, New Testament books, Leon Morris, you've probably heard his name, you've heard me quote from him before, has called this passage. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. We are entering this text today. Why is it so important? Put simply, it tells us how we are declared right with God. The greatest need of any human being is that. In fact, it is the only real need of any human being because in that, all other needs are ultimately truly met. How are we declared right with God? This paragraph answers that question. It tells us what God has done in Christ To justify us, what God has done to make sinners right with himself. And it tells us how God is glorified or how God's character, his nature is put on display as righteous in our being counted righteous through the cross of Christ. So all of that is accomplished in this paragraph. How are we made right with God or declared right with God? What did God do in Christ to make that happen? And how does all of this show forth his glory, his righteousness? All of that packed into this wonderful passage. To use the rest of Leon Morris's sentence, he goes on to say that this passage gives us the grandeur of Christ's saving work. Now, we get that in many passages. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2. But here we have put on display for us the grandeur of our Savior and his work. And so, as we begin this morning, I think we need to pause and just ask about the posture. Of our hearts. Before we enter into this bright and beautiful room of treasures, and we are entering into a treasury, before we enter into this room, this chief text, to use Luther's word, there are several things that we need to ask about the posture of our hearts. And here's the first thing. Are we ready to celebrate? Are we ready to celebrate, to rejoice, to give thanks? Because without that, this passage loses all of its power. That is exactly what this passage is meant to do in the heart of the Christian above all else. You read this passage and you exult You just blow up in celebration before God that this is, in fact, our our new condition. That this is, in fact, what God has done in Christ. And that this has transformed my eternal destiny. This has reshaped everything for me. And I now know God. I know the living God. The God who made the stars. Are we ready to celebrate? Romans fifteen eleven, Paul quotes from the Psalms, and he says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's the right response to what we're about to look at, that we would extol God, that we would praise God, So that's the first question about the posture of our hearts is are we ready to celebrate? And if you're not, get ready. Like right now, pray in your heart to God and ask him, give me a heart of celebration and gratitude as we go through. The second question about our hearts that we need to ask as we prepare for this is are we ready to hate? Are we ready to celebrate? Are we ready to hate? To hate our sin. As we see its great cost. That's what we find in this passage is the cost of sin. What did sin cost? The death of Christ, the Son of God. As we see his propitiation, his sacrifice, his atonement, we realize that sin is no small thing. It is no thing to court. It is something that we ought not to give any space to in our lives whatsoever. Whatever sin is in your life, whatever you can identify as sin, purge it from your life together. Be free of it in Christ Today, don't wait. Don't keep saying, I'm struggling with this. What a cop-out. What an excuse. I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Are you gonna struggle with this sin until you die? Sin no longer has dominion over the Christian. Paul will say in Romans chapter six, Satan wants you to think, that you will have to struggle with this until you die. This is just your plight. Not so. Turn, repent through Christ. So are we ready to do that? Are we ready to hate sin as we come to this sacred ground? A third question. Are we ready to look deep into our hearts to examine ourselves as to whether or not we have truly been made right with God. Have you been made right with God? Because this text, as it were, pulls every single person up here, not in front of me, but in front of this text, and pulls you up right here and looks you in the eyes and says to you, have you been made right with God? And the answer is either yes or no. There is no gray. You're never half right with God. You're never on your way to being right with God. You're either right with God right now or you're not. And the consequences are massive. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul says this in that text, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. But this text also, I think, asks us to ask another question. And that is, are we ready to look away from ourselves to Christ. That's the paradox, isn't it? That a text like this forces us to look upon ourselves, to look into our own hearts, to examine ourselves intensely, and yet at the same time tells us, oh, look away from yourself. Look away from yourself to Christ. Both together here. So the title for the sermon this morning is Right With God, Part 1. So today we're just going to begin to look at this passage. And today our focus will be verses 21 to 23. So just the, the first part, the first half of this text, and then we'll continue into it next week. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word together. We will read all of verses 21 to 26, but be looking at those first three verses. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable. It is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. What will the Lord do this day in your heart through this text? Ask him to do great things. Let's pray ...after we read and ask Him just for that. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested... ...apart from the law... ...although the law and the prophets bear witness to it... ...the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ... ...for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a beautiful passage. You know, you go ahead and be seated. I'll say this after you sit down. You, uh, you may not want to memorize Romans as a whole or Romans 1 to 8 or Romans 1 to 3 or 1 to 4. But would you memorize this Would you memorize this, what Leon Morris calls the most significant paragraph ever written, period? What a great place to start. If you've never memorized scripture before, this would be a good place to begin. And if you've been memorizing other things but kind of wondering where you're headed, turn to a text like this. Let's go to God in prayer and ask for his Lord, we're so grateful for this time together. We're grateful that we have the ability to meet in this building. We thank you for this building. We thank you for those who worked so tirelessly to make this a reality for us to be here with this space to gather and to gather during a time like this. Lord, we thank you for that. And We pray that in our gathering that faith would be grown and that you would be glorified. Father, we don't come to a text like this lightly. We pray that we would not. We ask this morning that our hearts would be heavy. Heavy with all of those questions we just looked at, Lord, that they would first and foremost be heavy with praise. Filled up to the top with exaltation and glorying in Jesus Christ. God, we pray that that would be our posture. That if that, insofar as that is not our posture, Lord, would you do the work of changing our hearts? Would you, by your spirit, move us all in that direction this very day? Lord, we pray for your help as uh, this text is Preached and explained this morning, we ask that it would be clear that uh, you would use the words to pierce hearts, and Father, that uh, you would you would show us our sin, and that you would show us the glory of the Savior. That we would rest, if we are Christians, Lord, this morning, that we those of us who are Christians, that we would rest in this Redeemer, and that we would examine ourselves in healthy ways, not in unhealthy, excessively introspective, navel-gazing kind of ways, but in ways that bring you glory and bring us clarity. We pray for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we will look at two things as we come to these first uh, few verses. And you'll have these up on the, uh, on the slides here. The Revelation and the recipients as we get underway. And you will notice that there is overlap here with chapter 1, verse 17, very similar. And that's because this is an unpacking of what we were introduced to in chapter 1, verse 17. You will remember that Paul goes through all of those greed, all of that greeting material. By the way, which we saw was not a mere formality, but it was the heart of the apostle for those people. He introduces himself, his gospel, introduces his mission. He greets the the brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the city of Rome with with the utmost love and tenderness. He expresses his concern for their spiritual condition, his longing to be with them. And then once he's done that, he immediately gets to his thesis statement, which is verses 16 to 17 of chapter 1. But then, immediately after he states his big idea, his big thesis, then he turns to human sinfulness. And now, today, we are, as it were, returning to chapter 1, verse 17, and beginning to see the unpacking of what was introduced there in chapter 1. So first, let's look at the revelation. Look at verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The language of this verse is the language of revelation. So we read, has been manifested. And then we read toward the end end of the verse, bear witness. This is the language in this verse of making something known, of disclosing something and what God has made known or disclosed in history and in terms of his plan is both new and old. So the revelation is both new and old. So we're going to take some time and look at both of those, how it is new and how it is old. So first it is new we can't help but to jump up in excitement as we read these opening words, but now, but now. For many weeks, we have been trudging our way through the message of sin and condemnation. And if you're just sitting in in one sitting and you're reading through chapter 118 all the way through 320, perhaps you feel uh, the, the weightiness of it more. We've been going through it over a period of time and always pointing forward to what's to come. But when you get to these words, but now, there is this sense of just utter excitement. Chapter 118 all the way to 320 puts us in our place. It, it really does, it wrecks us. It breaks us down, stripping us of all pride and false security. The big message of chapter 118 to 320 is that we are sinners who deserve God's punishment, but that's not all. It's not just that we are sinners who deserve God's punishment, but it is also that we are indeed under God's punishment. It's one thing to say we deserve it. It's another thing to say, we have it. This is the state of the world. This is the human condition. This is the in adamness that we are all born into. This is what we are contending with as we raise our children. This is what we are contending with as we struggle through marital life. This is what we are contending with as we try to do church together various human beings put together we have this in Adamness as Christians we carry around this in Adamness we are no longer in Adam we are in Christ but all human beings are born into this state of being being in Adam the first sinner and then After we've walked through all of this, after we've trudged through all of this, crashing into this awful picture, come these sweet words, but now. Much like the words of Ephesians 2 verse 4. Those first three verses of Ephesians 2 are crippling. I mean, they are, they're just awful to the heart. we, We see ourselves for who we really are. We talked about this last week, how we're only going to find that kind of that kind of information, we're only going to find that kind of reality and honesty in the church among God's people, underneath his word. Children of wrath, following after the devil. dead, but God. That's what we read in Ephesians 2, 4, and it is much like what we see here with these words, but now. These words tell us that God has introduced something into history. It, it, these are his, this is historical language. You have the progression of time. You have the progression of historical events, but now God has done it now. Not in years past, but now. And he has done it as a great reversal. It has happened now in history from Paul's perspective as he is thinking about recent events and it entirely reverses things. Hence both words, but reverses now situates it in history. Through what God has done now, the awful picture we've been looking at can be undone. It can be repainted. There is hope here and here alone. Let me say this to us this morning. Christianity, unlike every other religion and philosophical system in the world, does not deny Our situation. Every other religion in the world, you can be sure, denies our situation. The extent of our sin, the depth of our sin, the holiness of God, our offense to God, denies it in some way and therefore makes a way, carves out a path, a convenient path, a self-justifying path that allows us to deny reality. To live in self-deception. Christianity is the only religion, call it a religion, James does. Christianity is the only religion in the world, the only system of thought in the world that rather than denying the situation, it enters it in all of its baldness and deals with it. Deals with it. The now... That we read here refers to what God has done in Christ. The events of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And the subsequent preaching of Christ by the apostles. So what is the content of that preaching? That preaching that Paul would have carried out, John and Peter. What is the content of that preaching? That we can be made right With God through Christ. And we'll talk in a moment about how that comes about in a little bit more detail. But here, Paul returns to what he's already said, as I said before, back in chapter 1, verse 17. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as the gospel is preached. And in the inbreaking of the kingdom with Christ, as the gospel is revealed, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is the gift of God's righteousness. Remember, as we said back in chapter 1, verse 17, we're, not, we're talking in this particular verse about a gift that God gives. A gift of righteousness. A gift of righteous status. Right standing with God. This is the image of the law court where the judge declares righteous rather than condemned. Romans 5.17 makes this clear as it speaks of the free gift of righteousness. That is what the Christ event and the preaching of Christ, the gospel, holds out for people. You know the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says that there's a plea going out. There's a plea going out every Sunday when we gather to worship as, as, a, as a church corporately. There's a plea going out every time we go and we share the gospel with someone or we lead our children in family worship. And the plea is this, be reconciled to God. And we are reconciled to God through this gift of right standing before him. That's how that happens. Grace to you and peace. This is the language of the New Testament. As Christians are being greeted, how is it we have peace? Well, peace with God. Reconciliation with God. A a relationship, a restored relationship with our maker, who was our condemning judge, now our father. How? How? through the gift of this righteousness. That's why Paul is so excited. Are you excited? And when Paul says that it is apart from the law, he is speaking of the new covenant through Christ. So let me read you a passage. Now this may get a little bit in the weeds. So try to to stay with me on this, because I want you to see that this language, but now... Is, is redemptive historical in nature. In other words, Paul is, is explaining the, the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. So listen to his language in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, where he speaks of the law. This is what he says. It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. You see that language. So God put the law in place, the law, which is intrinsically good, but no one can keep it. God put the law in place until something, until something. Paul's saying that's happened. That until has come to pass. Then he goes on in Galatians 3, verses 22 to 25, to say this. But the scripture, this is the Old Testament, imprisoned everything under sin. That's what's happened over the last few weeks. We've been imprisoned under sin as Paul's been explaining this. Imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So here's the tension. We know Abraham was justified by faith. We know all those before Christ were justified by faith in the same way we are. Yet they were under a guardian, the guardian of the law all throughout the Old Testament after Abraham. And Paul will make that point. The law wasn't around with Abraham. We'll get there in chapter 4. But the Old Testament period where the Old Testament saints, those mentioned in Hebrews 11, are under this guardianship of the law. And their faith is expressed in their submission to that law and in their carrying out of that law. Their devotion to God by faith within the context of that law. Imprisoning, in a sense, pointing to their sin, guiding them, guarding them, acting as a teacher until Christ comes. That's what's happening in the Old Testament. And that's why Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let me give you a quote from a commentator, Douglas Moo, on this point. In the new era inaugurated by Christ's death, God has acted to deliver and vindicate his people apart from the law. He goes on to say that what is in view is the law as a system, as a stage in God's unfolding plan. So what I want you to see here is that with these words, but now, Paul is declaring that something new has happened in the coming of Christ. That the old covenant in which the law imprisons and acts as a guardian has now been fulfilled and faith in Christ Has come. But second, what God has made known is also old. So it is new, but it is also old. It is old because it is pointed to everywhere in the Old Testament. In the period in which the law was acting as a guardian before Christ came, it is testified to in the law and the prophets. And this is what we got at the very beginning of Romans. Paul does not want to go very far before he makes the reader aware and makes clear that the reader understands that what has happened in Christ and what is happening in the apostolic preaching was pointed to all throughout the Old Testament. And so in the very second verse of this epistle to the Romans, Paul says the gospel of God, he describes the gospel in this way which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Promised all along, many, many years before it happened. The prophecies of the Bible are one of the best ways to see the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. This is one of the things we point to. I remember hearing on a podcast one time that Ronald Reagan was... uh, talking with his father-in-law as he was dying. And this is the approach he took. His father-in-law was not a believer. And this was the approach that he took, was to explain to his father-in-law that Christ had fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. This is one of the ways that the Bible authenticates itself. Another way is the unity of Scripture all throughout, but that's connected to the prophecies because we've got these writers over a span of time, some of them very common folk, and some of them in palaces, coming from different parts of the world even, writing this one unified story in which there are promises and prophecies that are then fulfilled. And Paul wants to make clear that this has happened Even during that period of the Old Testament, God was pointing his people towards what he would later do in Christ. All the promises made to the patriarchs centered on Christ. The law and the sacrificial system, all pointing to Christ. And I would even say all of the heroes, right? We've talked about this with some of them. David in particular is very clearly portrayed in the Bible as a type of Christ. He is the one great type of Christ because he's a small C Christ. He's the anointed king of Israel. Christ will be the capital C Christ, the capital K king, the capital A anointed one. But we see this all throughout. Last night in our family worship time, We were talking about Samson in the book of Judges. And I think Samson also serves as a picture of Christ who would come. Joseph, as we talked about in Genesis, also pointing towards this Christ. So whether we're talking about the prophecies themselves that say one is to come or the law itself which displays God's perfect character and righteousness and standards or the sacrificial system that displays his holiness and the need for sacrifice and blood to atone for sins or the heroes of the Bible, all of it pointing to this glorious Christ. All meant to guide the people to Christ. Jesus makes this point very clear in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Just imagine. Jesus is speaking with his disciples, these two disciples after he rises from the dead and, and, and he says that they, they're, They're hard of hearing, that their hearts are hard, they're blind. Can't you see? I'm everywhere in the Old Testament. Can't you see? It is the blindness of sin, the blinding effect of sin that had taken hold of them. But it is clear Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. So, this is what I've been getting to. This gospel of being right with God, that God gives the gift of righteousness in his sight, he grants to us a status of righteousness. Sin and condemnation are removed. This is both new and old, as Paul describes it here. But who receives it? And how? Who gets this status? And how do they come to have it? And that brings us to our second point and last point this morning, and that is the recipients. So we've looked at the revelation. Now we come secondly to the recipients. Look at verses 22 to 23. The righteousness of God <clears throat> through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul repeats here what he has already made abundantly clear in this letter so far. All are sinners. We've been looking at this for so long now. And he says this in this quintessential verse. In fact, this verse becomes the verse we go to in the Bible to explain this very point typically, when we're sharing the gospel with someone. This is one of the first verses I grew up in church since I was three years old. This is one of the first verses I recall knowing by heart. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a a summary statement for what Paul has been getting across all along. This all have sinned connects us back to Adam. Paul will use the same language in chapter 5. Where he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And as we've seen, the issue with sin is God's glory. So, let me say this to you. It's, it's ultimately not about you. It's ultimately not about your neighbor. It is about the glory of God. All sin has to do with the glory of God, which is why it is so heinous, which is why it does deserve eternal hell. Of course, if sin in your mind is merely something that ruins your own life or ruins the lives of those around you, then come on, eternal hell Overkill. But that's not what sin is fundamentally. Sin is a trampling on the eternal glory of the eternal God that deserves nothing less than eternal punishment. Because guess what? God's glory is always going to be around. And God's glory will always be rejected by the sinner. Therefore, there is just, there's just no end to that. No end to the punishment inflicted for trampling that eternal glory. We have all fallen short of imaging that glory and glorifying God. We don't image him as we were created to do that image is marred and distorted and perverted nor do we give him glory as we ought from the heart with our mouths this is true for the gentile and for the jew and that's what paul's been doing think about this paul has been showing all along in chapter 1 and 2 that both jew and gentile are sinners but even more Paul has been showing that both Jew and Gentile have trampled the glory of God. That's the main thing. and We see that in chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, speaking of the Gentile pagan world, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And then the Jew. In chapter 2, verse 23. You who boast in the law... Dishonor God by breaking the law. Either way, it's the honor of God that is at stake. That is the issue. And Paul's point here is that because we have all sinned and because we all fall short of God's glory, there is nothing but unrighteousness as far as human beings are concerned. Here's the issue. We are all in the wrong before God. So, you imagine a person coming before God and it's really quick wrong, 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 unrighteous, glory trampling person, sinner. And therefore, all human beings are in need of this righteousness that only God can give. And here we are. This is the good news that God does give this righteousness. God does give a righteous status to a person who is in the wrong. He justifies the ungodly. He makes a person right with himself who in no way, shape, or form deserves any of that. He gives eternal glory in his presence, eternal happiness for those who deserve eternal torment. That's incredible. This declaration that we are righteous, this justification is given by God. That's the good news. Charles Hodge explains justification this way. I really like this because it helps us understand better, more precisely, what God does when he justifies the sinner. He says this, justification is not merely to remit, not merely forgiveness, not merely pardon. Punishment, it's not merely to remit punishment, but to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. That's amazing. It's not that God just looks at me as a Christian and says, forgiven. It is that according to his just and holy eyes as the judge, I cannot receive condemnation. I cannot be punished. It cannot be inflicted on me. That the demands of justice are satisfied that no ground for the infliction of punishment exists. It's wiped out, not merely pardoned, but wiped out because it's absorbed in Jesus Christ. This is amazing. God makes it right. God fixes the problem you can't fix. God overcomes your sin Your pride, your lust, your greed, your hatred of your neighbor, your idolatry. He overcomes it. God loves us this much. That is why John 3.16 begins, For God so loved the world. This is infinite love. This is amazing love from God to sinners who deserve nothing. That he would give us this status. This is what Christ's coming says. And this is what the apostles' preaching says. And this is what the entire message of Christianity says. Now let me say this about Christianity. It is unfortunate what certain polls and statistics suggest about what people think about Christianity. And what Christians or professing Christians believe Christianity teaches. Or what our kids growing up go off to college thinking that Christianity is. It is a matter, listen to this, of what we see this clearly in this great passage. It is a matter of what God has given on the basis of what God has done. Christianity is not about what you can do. It is not about what you need to do. It is not about how you can be better. It's not that. It is a message about God. It's a message about his glory, about his work, about his love, his character, his nature, his faithfulness, his power. It tells us what he's done and what he's given. And that's the emphasis here. In this passage. And even more. It is all people. It's for all who believe. No one is excluded. This gift goes out to all. The the call to turn to Christ. And trust him is for all people. To be reconciled to God. That plea goes out everywhere Paul went. Around the Mediterranean world. Be reconciled to God. Rich man. Poor man. Man, woman, be reconciled to God. No matter your race, no matter your background, no prior record matters, no pre-existing conditions are excluded from you being a recipient of this grace from God. It is for all who believe It does not matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you did this morning. This message goes out to you who are here, to you right now. And it says, be reconciled to God. Receive this gift from God of being counted righteous in his face before his eyes. So how do we receive this gift as we finish up this morning? The answer, the righteousness of God is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says it here very explicitly. So I want to I look at some considerations of this idea of faith in Jesus Christ. So here are a few as we close. Three things to consider about this clause here, faith in Jesus Christ or this phrase. First, this is not generic faith in God. This is not generic faith in God. How often do we hear the words I believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. That is not the call of the Christian. That's not the message we evangelize with That's not what we say to people. Believe in God. What we say to people is trust in Christ, God's Son. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's what Paul will go on to say. As we'll see next week. The object of our faith is this specific person. Who he is. And what he did. Let no generic faith in God stand. Who is God? In our world today, some vague generic understanding of some deity up there who who oversees our lives in some way, who is probably worshipped in all the religions of the world or maybe just a few or or maybe just one, but, but he's just God. No, God in Christ reconciles the world to himself. God in Christ. We preach Christ. We share Christ. He is the way, the truth and the life. John chapter 20 verse 31. Let me give you a few passages for this. John says these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. What that tells us is that John spent all that time writing that gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for one purpose, and that was to hold up Jesus so that his readers would believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 2.2, this is Paul. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How much do you think Paul was tempted strolling into Athens Home of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, striving uh, rolling up into Corinth, one of the major historic, ancient Greek cities. How tempted, writing to Rome? How tempted do you think Paul was? to really show himself, to really show his learning? to make his philosophical arguments. No, 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 no. Paul would have none of that. He said, I came to you to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. Because that's the power of God. That's the message. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we put in our vision statement as a church that we are centering on Christ, we are not just saying that because that's in the last decade or so been kind of a fad. You know, gospel-centered, Christ-centered. It's kind of, it's kind of, that language is very popular in, in certain circles. Today. That's not it. That's not it. It is because of this It is because Christ is the message. He is the one put forward by God. He is the one through whom, by believing in him, we are reconciled to God and counted righteous in his sight. Only through Christ. So that's the first consideration. This is not generic faith in God. The second is, this faith is not merely mental assent to something that is true. If your heart is stone cold towards Christ but you're willing to say, yes, you know, Christ is God's son, and he came and fulfills the prophecies and so forth. You need to ask yourself real questions about whether you're a believer because this is not merely mental assent to a set of doctrines. James chapter 2, verse 19, he say, in this passage, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe these points of doctrine, but they don't trust in God. They hate God. They love themselves, oh, the wickedness of the demons, the love of self for every single one of those evil spirits, the love of self and the glory of self filling the spirit of Satan himself. They hate God. They don't trust God. They don't love God's glory, but they believe. As we will see with Abraham in chapter 4, this faith is trusting in God's promises. And it's wonderful. One of the things I love about Romans is chapter 4. Because Paul just takes Abraham and he just walks with him through. And describes how his faith is prototypical. How Abraham's faith is the great picture of faith. That we need in understanding what it means to be saved. What it means to have that kind of faith trusting in God's promises, all of which are realized through Christ. And we know Abraham's looking to the seed. He's looking to the future. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. Finally, this faith turns entirely away from trusting in ourselves. Apart from works, apart from the law, Apart from our deeds, this is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, not righteousness through some faith in Christ and some faith in my ability to do better tomorrow. Faith turns entirely away from trusting in ourselves, trusting in our works and what we do and looking only to Christ as our righteousness before God. The one who obeyed in our place, the one who was sacrificed in our place, the one who we take hold of by faith. Just like in the Old Testament, we get that beautiful picture. You imagine those Hebrews putting that blood over their door going in, sitting down, having that meal. Not a care in the world. Not a care in the world because they know that when God who promises sees the blood, he will pass. He will pass. He will not devour that home. We see the same thing with Rahab, that little red piece of fabric. In that house huddled, those Canaanites there gathered together, her family, all that commotion going on on the outside, and they know. Because the God of Israel has spoken. And she knows, she trusts God by his grace. She trusts him. She knows that the wrath of God will pass. That's trusting. It's the only basis. That's it. Not a single work you do will save you. Nothing You'll have only Christ's blood and rest in it. Be ready to die. Be ready to undergo anything because the blood covers you. I'm going to read a quote from the 19th century Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers as he encourages us to look away from ourselves to Christ. And I'll finish with this quote. The foundation of your trust before God must be, and this is a little, the language is a little hard to follow, but try to understand what he's saying. The foundation of your trust before God must be either your own righteousness out and out or the righteousness of Christ out and out. If you are to lean upon your own merit, lean upon it wholly. Entirely. If you are to lean upon Christ, lean upon Him wholly. The two will not amalgamate together. And it is the attempt to do so which keeps many a weary and heavy laden inquirer at a distance from rest. Are you at a distance from rest today? And at a distance from the truth of the gospel Maintain a clear and consistent posture. Stand not before God with one foot upon a rock and the other upon a treacherous quicksand. We call upon you not to lean so much as the wit of one grain or scruple, of your confidence upon your own doings. To leave this ground entirely and to come over entirely to the ground of a Redeemer's blood and a Redeemer's righteousness. That is sure footing. In life and death, that is sure footing. That's our only righteousness with God. We will either stand or fall on that day Based on whether or not we have believed in Jesus Christ, who is the ground through his blood of our salvation. Are you standing on the quicksand partially today? Come on over. Come on over from that and stand on this rock from this day forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for faith. Just as Paul will say, that faith itself, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith itself is is a gift. It's a gift from you. but you call us all here this morning to respond to this message in faith? To respond. To trust in Jesus Christ in his blood, in his sacrifice. Lord, thank you for reminding us of these things this morning. We pray that your word would stick into our hearts and minds this week, that you would guide us and help us to do works that are in accordance with this faith in Jesus Christ and to rest entirely on him. In Jesus' name, amen.